Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Big Bend National Park in Southwest Texas has just about everything you might want in a national park. Isolated mountains for hiking and camping, a scenic and wild river for kayaking, canoeing, and rafting, dark skies overhead for stargazing, and a species-rich desert for bird watching and exploring. But because the park is located hundreds of miles from a major airport and 100 miles from the nearest interstate highway, it is perhaps one of the country's least visited of the big national parks. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. In this week's podcast, the traveler's Lynn Riddick begins a two-part series about her recent trip to Big Bend, a vast wilderness in the Chihuahuan Desert along the Rio Grande. In this week's episode, Lynn meets up with the park's chief of interpretation, who offers an overview of the park's varied geology and diverse ecology, its human history, and what the future may hold for visitors seeking adventure and solitude in the park's 800,000 acres. Wild Tribute is lifestyle apparel founded for our parks and public lands. We donate 4% of our proceeds to support America's most wild and historic places. This is our Wild Tribute. Together, we can and will make a difference for the parks. You can learn more at wildtribute.com. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experiences in the parks and land space with the breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. That's P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Nova Scotia, 8,000 miles of coastline dotted with colorful fishing villages, quaint coastal towns, and an abundance of scenic natural beauty. Home to two national parks, Cape Breton Highlands and Kajimakujik. Spend your nights under a canopy of twinkling stars. Spend your days exploring trails, beaches, historical waterways, and tons of cultural and recreational experiences. Visit NovaScotia.com today to start planning your natural getaway. It's a sunny 79 degree mid-December day in Big Bend National Park. I'm sitting outdoors under a pop-up canopy at the Panther Junction Visitor Center. A nice breeze is blowing, so you might hear the canopy tie-downs clacking against the metal frame. I'm here with Chief of Interpretation and Visitor Services, Tom Vandenberg. Hi, Tom. Welcome to The Traveler. Hello. I'm glad you're here. (laughs) Watching the news report this morning and seeing everybody preparing for blizzards and ice, and here we are, 80 degrees. Beautiful. uh, Very nice. Yeah, very nice. Well, thanks for taking time uh, to talk with us. So let's start by having you give us a brief overview of the park, and then we can drill down a little bit later into details. Um, Those that are not familiar with Big Bend National Park... uh, 
the location. We're in far, far west Texas within a big bend of the river, uh, the big bend of the Rio Grande. And the park is quite large, 800,000 acres, wide open spaces, dark skies, quiet desert soundscapes, unique wildlife, birds, tons of great recreation, and really the biggest chunk of public land in Texas. So it's got all kinds of great attractions and people are more and more people have discovered the park and are on their way as we speak. <laughs> so in terms of square miles, 1,500? About 1,200 square miles, I think, is kind of what it comes out to. Yeah, 1,200 square miles, 800,000 acres, also contiguous to some other protected areas, both in the United States and in Mexico. So actually, that whole conglomerate adds up to close to 2 million acres of protected lands both with State of Texas, Big Bend National Park, uh, Wild and Scenic River, and three protected areas in Mexico. What other national parks would compare in size? I think Big Bend is the 15th largest national park. It's about, you know, size of Rhode Island, something in that neighborhood. And it just has this incredible lure. You know, there are other parks that are bigger, and there are other parks that have the whole diversity of habitats, but none really have the lure or the mystique of the Big Bend of Texas, the surrounded on three sides by a foreign country, the kind of the romance and mystery of the borderlands. Um, 29 degrees latitude takes us way down into the northern reaches of lots of really interesting species of both plants and animals. And of course, you know, the weather. Um, like we're seeing today. There's just a lot of things that, that really go for this place. It's, it's is it typical to have an 80-degree day in December here? Yeah, this is a winter park. So between really mid-October through April, it's sublime here. And those people that come unprepared and show up in June, <laughs> <laughs> why am I here and what is this park all about? Well, we ask them to come back uh, in the winter months. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful place in the winter months. Perfect weather. How did the park come about? The park started a long time ago, actually over a hundred years ago. One of the early settlers to the area, Everett Townsend, was a Texas Ranger and a, a customs, mounted customs officer, later became a state representative, and he he loved this place, traveled around this big, wide, vast desert uh, on horseback and traveled through the Chisos and looked out in the late 1800s, actually, and this idea of setting it aside as some sort of park came to mind. And he was one of the big, outspoken proponents of getting this area established as some sort of park. It was totally unknown back in those days. Um, the state of Texas started turning their eyes toward the area in the late 20s, and a state park was established in 1933. Texas Canyon State Park, and then they real quickly changed the name to Big Bend State Park, but they really were seeking national park classification um, for various reasons. It would bring in business and tourism to a fairly depressed area. It would be a crown in the, you know, a feather in the cap of Texas to have a, a national park, and probably also they were thinking about it would help with, you know, funding to have a national park as opposed to a state park. The National Park Service sent a team here in the mid-1930s, not knowing anything about the Big Bend of Texas. 
actually George Wright and Roger Toll came down here on a, on a visit and spent a couple of weeks and just were blown away by the resources of this mysterious remote area and recommended it to Congress as a national park. Uh, legislation was passed in 1935 approving a national park in West Texas, um, but it, it was up to the state of Texas to obtain the land. You, know, you have to remember this was settled at that time. There were pioneers out here that had been here for a couple generations. There, were, there was ranching interests, there was mining interests, people that loved the place and had worked hard to make a living out here. It took about seven years and the state of Texas eventually raised the funds to purchase the land from landowners, about a million and a half dollars for about 600,000 acres and uh, donated it to the federal government as Texas's gift to the nation exclusively to establish a national park. And that legislation passed the, passed, uh, the desk of President Roosevelt on June 6, 1944, which was D-Day. So on the D-Day invasion, I'm sure one of the craziest days of his life, he was thinking about Big Bend National Park, at least for a few moments. And now here we are today, you know, over 75 years later, and just have this amazing place that forward-thinking people knew we'd need one day. <laughs> and we need it more than ever now, as people are discovering. So it's kind of got a neat story. Texans are very proud of Big Bend National Park. Um, that moniker, the Texas's gift to the nation, is something that really sticks, and people love it. Um, most of our visitors are from Texas, which is interesting compared to other parks I've worked in. Most of our visitors are from the local state, which is not usually the case. I mean, it's, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 70% of our visitors are from Texas and uh, have been here many, many times before. So they just love the place. Yeah. So that's a little bit about the story of Big Bend National Park. So I understand part of the reason it was um, approved by Congress and eventually signed uh, into law as a national park by Roosevelt is because it's so geologically diverse and so so much uh, biodiversity in the flora and the fauna and the wildlife. Yeah. People that are from the eastern half of the United States and love geology, it's challenging. You can't see the geology very well. And... Um, you come to Big Bend National Park and it's all on display, literally on display. So you can follow formations for dozens and dozens of miles from one spot. Uh, the park also is in a very interesting crossroads of geology in that we actually have sort of the hem of the skirt of the Appalachian Range here in the northern reaches of the park. So ancient, ancient rocks. Uh, also the southernmost extension of the uh, Rocky Mountain folding in the United States in Mariscal Mountain in the back country of the park and also uh, the farther southern and west so southeasternmost extension of the basin and range in the United States as well the big fault block mountains here so all of this is on display and some of the greatest scenery of Big Bend National Park are some of the ancient uh, Cretaceous limestone cliffs so 100 120 million year old limestone cliffs they're 1500 feet high and they catch the sunrise and catch the sunset and make some of the great panoramas of Big Bend. And of course, that's what the river is cut through as well, um, leaving us with three magnificent limestone canyons in the park. I wanted to ask you about, you know, the park is considered really sort of three different parks in one yeah. because of what you just said, correct? It is, yeah. The park, uh, you can, it's a little much for people to take in sometimes because it is so big and it doesn't look like anywhere else. It doesn't look like anywhere else in the United States. Uh, it certainly looks like nothing else in Texas. Um, 
So people that visit here are just blown away by, by what they see. Geology is a huge part of it. And sometimes it's best to kind of think of the park as three in one, yeah, to help people kind of grasp it. So we have uh, the river and the river canyons. There's 119 miles of Rio Grande, and then another 100 miles that extends down past downstream of the park as the Wild and Scenic River. Um, and the river canyons are just kind of a park in themselves. You know, it's 1,500 foot uh, vertical limestone walls. Santa Elena Canyon is uh, over 20 miles long, and Mariscal 10, and Boquillas Canyon is a 30 mile long canyon. It's just vertical walls. It's just amazing. So a float trip or an exploration into those canyons is just a, a far cry from the, the desert. What most people assume it's just some sort of wasteland desert. So you have the river canyons, you have uh, the desert, which is kind of the soul of the park, Chihuahuan Desert, which also is not something that most Americans are familiar with. You don't find it in many other places in the United States. It's truly a Mexican desert. And so all the plants and things that you might find here just look a little off <laughs> to many people. So the desert is, is fantastic, and the park preserves the representative example of Chihuahuan Desert in the United States. And then um, the mountains. So believe it or not, Texas has mountains. And uh, some people may not know that until <laughs> they come here. So the Chisos Mountains are a volcanic mountain range. Uh, one of its claims to fame is that it's you know, like the only standalone mountain range completely surrounded by a national park, which is pretty cool. It's not a huge mountain range by um, some standards, but it's a, it's a special little sky island mountain range that is home to all kinds of plants that are found nowhere else in the United States. It's certainly a forested island surrounded by desert and filled with castaway plants, animals, and birds. So the closest habitat similar to the Chisos Mountains in the park, the woodlands, would be at least 100 miles away uh, into Mexico. So yeah, mountains, desert, river, canyons, it, it, it adds up to a lot more than just the sum of its parts. It's pretty magical. Yeah, and I know traveling to other national parks, you know you're going to be doing a lot of driving if you want to see a park. And here, the same thing, you are doing a lot of driving because, like you say, it's just vast. It's just really impressive and amazing and, uh, and uh, so majestic. Yeah, it's a, long, it's a long drive just to get to the park. <laughs> you know, we're, we're pretty remote. Um, it's not really on the way to anywhere. Literally, it's not on the way to anywhere. Um, you really have to take a gamble and head off the interstate and head south for a couple hours and you'll, you'll enter this, this beautiful landscape and uh, the views just get better and better as you get closer and closer to the park and then once you see the park sign you know you're surrounded by something special. It is a big place and uh, it really takes more than a day or two to really get a feel for it. And some people maybe on their first day or if they're just driving through, which is always sort of surprised to me that there's people that just drive through because it is so far <laughs> to get here. I don't know if they ever really capture what is so special about it. I think maybe, oh, we'll come back one day and hopefully they will. But it takes some time to get to know it. And there are big spaces and distances involved. Visitation. What's visitation been like the last couple of years? Well, it's funny because um, the park for decades our visitation was around 320,000 a year, 320, 350. And that was, uh, that was a, a, a perfect level <laughs> of visitation. It was 
kind of at the upper end of what the park's facilities could handle. And then over the last few years, visitation has really started to climb. Uh, we, we're seeing that in through the early, you know, early 2000s, it started slowly climbing. And then the Find Your Park campaign, I think everybody found Big Bend at that time. <laughs> so around the centennial numbers here and elsewhere, other parks really started climbing. And then during the pandemic, I think people really started to get why it's important to have big open spaces like Big Ben because our visitation just started blowing up during the pandemic. Um, our visitation nowadays, um, we just started getting some of our numbers. We don't have the full 2021 numbers yet, but it's uh, we're well we're already well into a record. We are, I think the latest count, 550,000 visitors or something like that for this year. And we'll probably be close to 580, close to 600,000 this year. And the most recent normal year when we didn't have closures, which was 2019, I think we had 460,000. So we're looking at maybe 100,000 more visitors a year. Wow. Well, I had to compare that to my first visit to Big Bend. This is my second but my first one was in 1991, and I checked the visitation records for that year, 296,000, yeah. so pretty much what you're saying. So it's yeah. doubled in those you know past 30 years, but yeah. you would expect it to, especially now when oh. people are sort of catching. I hear a lot of people back where I live in San Antonio talking about Big Bend or going or they went or whatever, mm-hmm. more so than I ever have heard in the past. Mm-hmm. So I would agree with that. Yeah, we, we saw... Lots of visitors, um, you know, we're hosting, again, close to 600,000 visitors a year. And it's been fun having new people. You know, we've seen a lot of first-time visitors over the last couple of years, which is really cool. I mean, that's what parks are for. Their parks are for parks are for people to enjoy. It's their park. There's some challenges there as well. You know, there's a lot of, we, we're seeing people, it's their first time to a national park, which is exciting, but, you know, maybe the first time camping first time hiking, um, never been here before, various amounts of research before they hit the road and drive all the way out here. Mm-hmm. And that that's not key to a successful trip. Right. You know? So you really have to kind of, first of all, just look on a map and see where we are. Oh yeah, there aren't a lot of facilities around there. I need to be prepared. I need to know what I'm getting into. I need to know what the habitat's like. I need to have a plan of what types of activities I want to participate in, make sure I have the right gear for that you know I, I it's pretty normal for, for visitors to come to big bend national park and say oh you know we're here for three days we want to hike this we want to do a river trip we want to <laughs> you know see blooming cactus awesome i'm here to help you with that but we were getting a lot of people okay i'm here what am i supposed to do <laughs> you know? and that's kind of frustrating you know? a little bit of research is exactly essential. yeah is everybody behaving properly? Any vandalism, uh, rescue, stuff like that? Um, you know, again, people love Big Bend National Park, and we don't tend to see a lot of the major issues that a lot of other parks have experienced. We, I, I can't say that we haven't seen more slight upticks in vandalism and litter and things like that. Again, we had a lot of new visitors, people that aren't used to national parks, so there's some education and a learning curve there. I, I can for sure say we had more search and rescue type activities, more first aid responses and things like that. Again, it goes along with a lot of first time visitors and, you know, not the most forgiving type of environment. 
And so people hiking without the right footwear or people without enough water hiking in a desert, that sort of thing. Yeah, we definitely are, are still seeing some of that. Tell me a little bit about Big Ben's ancient life. What was here? What were the indigenous people like um, who inhabited this area? What about mammals that were part of the landscape? Well, it's, the park is part of a, just a long, you know, pageant of, of human travelers and inhabitants. There are at least, there's at least 13,000 years of documented human history in Big Bend National Park and literally thousands of archaeological sites. So, you know, ancient archaic peoples and their shelters and their tools and things are something that's found here all through the park. The pageant of history travels all the way through the, the Spanish arrival to the new frontier. There's remains of a Spanish Presidio, uh, an old fort along the boundary of uh, the park in Mexico, um, down near San Vicente, way in the back country of the park. Um, there's the remains of old trails and shelters and rock art um, all through the park. You know, the, the, the native story continues into the more modern era with the Apache and the Comanche. This is, was part of the Comanche War Trail. Um, they traveled through what's now Big Bend National Park through some of the passes that the roads travel today uh, as part of the War Trail on the way down into interior Mexico. So lots of, lots of human history here. And then historic history with the, the old ranches and the old mines that are still here to explore. Um, and a cotton farm? Cotton farming and floodplain farming down along the Rio Grande, down near Castellon. Really anywhere you go in the park. That's one of the great things about it is that you, you may be here for the geology or you may be here to look for that rare bird, but anywhere you go, you know, there's just echoes of history all around. And I've, I don't even know how many times that I've been literally miles from any trail or any road and you look down and there's a horseshoe down there, or there's part of an old fence. Or uh, a few weeks ago, my wife and I were hiking way off one of the backcountry roads. We were literally miles away from the road, just walking down a wash, and we came around the corner, and there was the site of an old homestead there. We didn't even know it was there. It's not really on the maps today. There was an old bathtub there. There was an old <laughs> water tank. There was an old foundation. I mean, it was incredible. Very cool stuff like that. And it begs the question, you know, what was the effort involved to get those things there? Amazing. I mean, just the fortitude of people that made a living in, in this place is just very, something that really stimulates a lot of respect. I mean, I live here now, and it's, it's not an easy place to live today. But when you think about the early pioneers and early peoples and how they traveled and had to live off the land here, uh, it's, it's mind-blowing. It really is. Wildlife. You've got 22 species of bat, 22 species of lizards, 31 species of snakes, including four species of rattlesnakes. Is that right? That's true. And 450 species of birds. Yeah. Uh, talk a little bit about the wildlife. And yeah, as far as national parks go, I don't think you can find a national park uh, more diverse than Big Bend. It's my understanding, and of course I haven't gone around and counted everything, but there are more species of Birds, bats, ants, cactus, scorpions, butterflies uh, in Big Bend than any other national park. And part of that is 
Well, it's the diverse habitats. Again, the three parks in one type um, story. There's literally a vertical mile of relief in the park. So you go from along the river, it's just below, you know, 1,600 feet, 1,800 feet up to almost 8,000 feet up in the Chisos, and that's a, that's, a, that's a mile. Lots of little homes all along the way for lots of different creatures to make a living. And then at 29 degrees latitude, again, this is the northernmost reach of many southern species, but we're also the southernmost reach of a lot of northern species. And then we're also kind of right in the middle of the continent, and so it literally overlaps east and west. So it's east, west, north, south. All these things come together right here. So it's kind of a meeting ground of, of ecology. And so you start adding things up and it gets, it gets pretty significant right away. So people come here literally from all over the world to see um, birds for sure. This is a huge park for birds, especially during the spring migration. There are a number of species that you can't find anywhere else in the United States or very difficult to find them elsewhere. Uh, Kalima warbler is one that comes to mind. That's kind of the park's you know, claim to fame, but there's a number of, there's over a dozen species of hummingbirds and people come here to see those. Even something like the Mexican jays you find there along the trail on the Lost Mine or Window Trail. That's not something you can find in many other places in the United States. So lots of, lots of Mexican species and lots of Northern species like to spend the winter here as well. Um, and then plant-wise, the same thing. Just this whole flora of Mexico idea. And then uh, as far as other, you know, mammals go, the park is famous for lots of, lots of really interesting wildlife. Mountain lions, of course, roam the park. the park. Have you ever seen any? I've seen mountain lions for sure. Yeah, definitely. It's always a fleeting glimpse, but it stays with you for a long time. <laughs> yeah, it's wow, you know. Uh, mountain lions, um... Coyotes, obviously, we hear those every night. Wherever we are in the park, you'll hear coyotes. Um, javelina are a creature that a lot of people have never had a chance to see before they come to Big Bend. It's a collared peccary, again, more of a Latin American type creature. Um, but they roam the deserts and feed on directly on prickly pear pads and cactus fruits and make a, make a nice living here in the desert. Black bears were one of the creatures that was not here when the park was established although they had been here historically, but they were kind of hunted out, exterminated, I think probably during some of the early ranching days. And the Park Service was very interested in returning black bears one day to the park. There's plenty of habitat for them and had lots of meetings and talked about it and it never really happened. And then sometime in the late 1980s, you know, the bears just said, forget it, we're not waiting, we're coming. And bears started popping up uh, in the park they just found their way back. They, nature found its way, and they started showing up, and we'd see a male bear for a few years, and then it would be gone, and then another bear, and then more bears. And I think 1989, a visitor took a photo of a mama bear with three tiny, tiny, tiny little baby that year cubs that, you know, had not crossed the desert to come here. So they only had a breeding population in the Chisos. And uh, so that you know, that just stimulated all kinds of questions. Where, where are these bears coming from? Are they genetically isolated here? Are they, is there enough habitat for them? Are they gonna be able to survive here? What are the impacts gonna to be to people? To see a bear in Texas is pretty darn cool. Well, we did um, uh, some blood samples and genetic testing and kind of figured out the Big Bend family tree here. And they're from Mexico. They're from the mountains in Mexico, the Maderas del Carmen. Serenius del Burro ranges south of here. So they, 
literally came and crossed the desert and came across the Rio and, and set up housekeeping in the Chisos. And um, they are not genetically isolated either. They, we found that they move back and forth quite, quite readily and fairly frequently, especially in drought years and when there's not as much of a mast or food crop, they'll, they'll travel far and wide. It's really cool nowadays to have a, a healthy bear population in the park because you'll see them in the Chisos Mountains for sure, but you know, I probably see more bears out in the desert nowadays than I did even a few years ago. So they're coming down out of the mountains and they're feeding on desert fruits and, and looking for water sources and things. So it's, it's one of the park's big, you know, claims to fame. Uh, you know, the fact that setting this park aside for the future was good for wildlife as well. So very cool for visitors to see black bears in the park and wish everybody had At a chance a distance. to see one. At a distance. <laughs> yeah, the minute they came into the park, you know, they, when they started returning, we had an opportunity to kind of set the stage on how things are going to work. You know, a lot of the national parks, we establish national parks right on top of bear habitat and we'll build a campground here and this is where the visitor centers will go and blah, blah, blah. And here it was like, okay, bears are starting to come back. What are we going to do? So immediately we started this really pretty in-depth education campaign and established guidelines on food storage and provided bear-proof food storage lockers at all the campsites and everything like that. And because of that, we really have no bear problems here. There are really no issues with bears coming up to people, looking for food, harassing anybody, walking through campgrounds. It just, just really doesn't happen here. So it's really a magical opportunity just to see bears doing bear things uh, in a wild place. Yeah. I have just learned about a creature called the vinegaroon. Oh. <laughs> that sounds terrifying. I hope I don't see one, but tell me what that is. Yeah, well, uh, the vinegaroon's actually like, I don't know, this summer, vinegaroons just went crazy. <laughs> vinegaroons, so we did a post. We did a social media post on vinegaroons, which is kind of like a pseudoscorpion. It, it, uh, it's a scary looking little creature, um, but totally harmless to people. It is black, it has two big pinchers, it has this whip-like tail, so it's like a whip scorpion is, is what you classify it as. And they can actually spray a little bit of a acetic uh, spray, kind of a vinegar-like spray out of their abdomen if they're harassed or they feel vulnerable or threatened. And you, you often see them walking around during the day on trails and things like that. And they are kind of scary looking, totally harmless, really cool little creatures. How so, big are they, would you say? Oh, they're about, you know, six, seven inches long. They're not <laughs> super small. And we did a social media post about them and it was a very, you know, educational, interesting post. And uh, that got picked up on social media, and it just went crazy. And then all the posts were, you know, actually, I was on vacation at the time, and I was getting these, uh, these messages on my news feed about, uh, what was it, uh, acid-spitting land lobsters from hell in Big Bend <laughs> National Park. <laughs> Don't so go there. It became this crazy <laughs> clickbait all about, you know, vinegaroons. So it's a cool thing to look for, but uh, nothing to really worry about. Again, yeah. maybe... You know, I can see one from a distance. Yeah, yeah, vinegaroon. <laughs> Stargazing in night skies. The park is certified dark sky park. Yeah, International Dark Sky Park is one of the first. And um, still to this day, uh, actually even more today uh, than then, um, the park is sought out for dark skies. And I often think when the park was established in 1944, do we really think 
dark skies would be one of the big attractions out here? I probably think not, but nowadays they're becoming pretty hard to find. And a place like Big Bend that's still so far away from everything, um, we just have night skies in abundance. And so it's one of our popular interpretive programs or star programs and full moon hikes and things like that. And people come literally again um, from all over the world to, to see the Milky Way. It's always amazing to me just how many visitors see the Milky Way for the first time here in Big Bend. That's pretty cool. It is. It is, a, it is a shocking, shockingly uh, amazing dark skies here. I'm Lynn Riddick in Big Bend National Park, and I'll be back with Chief of Interpretation Tom Vandenberg after this short break. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. In addition to some of the best rates in the country, Interior Federal Credit Union gives back their members more than other financial institutions in the form of dividends and low or no fees. With higher dividend rates, you can earn more in all your accounts like certificates, money markets, and even a checking account. They focus to make sure that their members aren't being nickel and dimed every time they make a transaction. That is the beauty of Interior Federal Credit Union. Send your bank up, 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 and away and experience the membership difference with Interior Federal Credit Union. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm back with Tom Vandenberg in Big Bend National Park. Talk a little bit about some of the issues. Uh, one of them is the structural issues at the Chisos Mountain Lodge and uh, the need for repairs or replacement. Uh, what's the status with that? Tell me about where the funding's coming from. Yeah, Big Bend National Park is in line for some big chunks of funding through the Great America Outdoors Act and um, in the neighborhood of $50 million over the next few years. And that's mostly for two big projects. One of them is the Chisos Mountains Lodge. The lodge building, the main building, the restaurant building was built in 1966. It uh, was perfect for visitation back when it was 150,000 visitors a year or less. Uh, but in recent years, it's, it hasn't fared very well. It's, it never really had a very 
strong and sturdy and proper foundation for the soils that it was built on, and so it needs some help. Um, it's not like it's in any danger of imminently collapsing, but the building needs some help. And so one of the big projects is to renovate and rehab the main lodge building. And this will be using the same footprint as the existing building. It'll harken back to the history of the building and it'll look right on its site. And we're working right now with a team of designers to kind of come up with some schematics and some different options that then we'll roll out for public uh, input. So I would say if people are interested in how that's gonna, what that's gonna look like or what it's gonna be, follow the park on social media and stay tuned with our press releases and you can follow along as we move forward to really provide a facility that will meet the needs of today's visitors and also be way more efficient than what we have now. That lodge is, doesn't really have a good efficient use of space and a lot of the appliances are old and you know water is paramount here in the, in, in the desert. So we want to make sure that we're, we're using water appropriately and, and sufficiently as possible. So that's pretty exciting, um, the new lodge building. And I think that's probably, you know, I think we're looking at like five, six, seven years uh, out probably for the completion of it. Again, we're in just kind of the early, early kind of design, kicking around some designs and using some designers to come up with some plans. So I haven't even seen the latest schematics, but it's, uh, it's the same footprint basically where it is now. Yeah, it can't be in a better place. I mean, that's such a great location it, right there with yeah. the view of the window. Yeah, it's a beautiful spot, but we don't want to enlarge it either. You know, we want to be respectful and responsible uh, in development in the park, and we, we, we're not looking at adding more taps or using more water. We're hoping we can use less. Um, along with that, there may be some rearranging of the entranceways or the parking areas to capitalize on that view. Right now it's kind of funny because you'll be on the porch of the lodge and uh, eating a meal and you're kind of looking down right on top of some parking areas and you know it, it could be a lot better. <laughs> so we're hoping to, to capitalize on that as well. And then the other big project which is associated with the lodge as well is the water system for the Chisos Basin. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, what is the water source? Yeah, so a lot of people don't ever think about that, but it's really important. When the whole Chisos Basin area, which is in the, in the Chisos Mountains, it's the primary developed area of the park. It's the only place there's a lodge or a restaurant, uh, anything like that. That area was developed before it was a national park. It was the, when it was the state park, there was a CCC contingent here. And one of their first jobs was to try to find water. This is a wonderful place to develop, but we need water for an infrastructure or even our CCC camp. And they really could not find it anywhere. No real long-term reliable sources, a lot of ephemeral sources. So the, the closest water source to the Chisos Basin is actually on the desert floor outside the, Chiso, the basin window. The window is this gigantic cleft in the cliff wall um, you know, a couple thousand feet deep, and there's a small spring down on the desert floor known as Oak Spring, and all the water for the whole Chisos Basin area is pumped up from that little tiny spring up to a big storage tank behind the lodge. Is there a trail that goes down there? Because I believe I yes. took a trail down there when I was here for my yeah. first visit. Yeah, one of the most popular trails in the park is what we call the Window Trail, and that essentially follows the path of the pipe. 
And you can see the old pipe in places. Most places it was cleverly hidden and buried or behind some uh, nice rock walls that the CCC worked on, but in some places it's exposed. And that was put in in the 1950s. And it's, uh, it's old pipe, it's, it has some leaks in it. it uh, we, we pump water up into the Chiso space and then I, I can't say confidently that all the water we pump up there goes into the tank. And so this project would be to repair that water line, which is a huge engineering feat. It's amazing how people did it in the 1950s and to think about doing it today. Uh, very challenging, but doable. And then all the distribution lines throughout the Chisos Basin area. So the water, water lines that go to the lodge and to the restaurant and to the campgrounds, um, the housing areas up there, all of that. So it's basically just making sure that we're as responsible and efficient as possible with that tiny little spring. And we did a bunch of studies on the spring as well. You know, as you look forward and things are getting hotter and drier, you know, we didn't want to spend a lot of money and start moving forward if this was not really a tenable water source. But um, the experts tell us that, yeah, it is, but we don't want to use any more of it. So we think we can actually use quite a bit less and provide better services. So that, that's, that, those are two big, big projects in the works. I would say I'm staying at the lodge uh, in one of the cabins, and the water is great. The okay. tap water is great. Good. Yeah. So. Well, it's a beautiful little spring down there. You know, if right now we, we pump water from the spring into the tank, and, you know, a lot of the water flows back into the ground and uh, irrigates that small spring area, and it's just a huge area for wildlife. And if we could use less of that water, we'd even have more for wildlife. So that's kind of our goal. Tell me a little bit about some of the invasive species of animals and plants you have here, and what are the biggest threats? Yeah, there's a number of those, uh, primarily along the river. Bamboo? Um, well, it's not bamboo. It's called the giant cane, river cane, Arundo donax, and that's, uh, it looks like bamboo. Okay, that's what and I it, thought I was looking at, grass. right? It is grass. doesn't get quite as large as bamboo. And there's a native cane as well, it's, but uh, the giant cane... Uh, is something that's just spread all through the Rio Grande drainage, not not just here in the park. It's infamous, you know, it's all over the place. And so it, it's uh, something that takes over riverbanks, it holds sediment back that normally should be flowing down the river, it clogs waterways, and it also covers up some of the best camping spots along the river. So we do what we can to uh, burn it back from time to time. We also spray it as needed and sometimes a combination of spraying and burning with our partners across the river as well. The, um, the folks that work for the state or the protected areas in Mexico also um, cooperate with us on some of these these river cane control trips that we do. I mean, that's those are remote areas. These are This is a process that takes, uh, you know, you have to take a river trip um, to do it. So it's not like you can just drive on down there and clear cane all day and drive back home at night. It's like, no, this is part of a two or three week extended expedition down yeah. into some of the most remote places in the country. What other invasive species are worrisome? There's also a type of tree known as tamarisk that you'll find growing in some of the water courses. And it's very difficult to control as well. That's another uh, plant that's not native to North America that's now widespread through water sources in the West that uses a lot, lots of water and is not readily used by wildlife, nesting birds, things like that. So tamarisk is something that we also work hard to control. And nowadays, surprisingly, there's a number of exotic grasses, grasses that have obtained a foothold in some of the desert areas of the park, 
particularly along roadsides and campsites. Uh, Johnson grass and buffalo grass are two that I believe both of them are from Africa. And you wouldn't think a grass growing in the desert would be that big of a deal, but it actually has uh, some, some potential very hazardous ramifications. And one is that it, it actually can burn. You know, you think of the Chihuahuan Desert, wildfire in the desert is not something that really typically comes to mind. You know, most plants are pretty widespread and there's a lot of open ground. Um, but here we've actually had wildfires in some of the desert areas of the park and it's spread by these invasive grasses. And so that's something that needs mechanical control, regular um, cutting along the roadsides, uh, as well as um, from time to time spraying. And that's actually one of the factors that we think resulted in the fire down at Castellone a few years ago that burned one of our historic structures. A fire that started a couple, like a mile away in Mexico, came across the river, burned through that cane, which is also very dry, shouldn't have been there, it's an exotic plant. And then it got into some of the dry desert areas that really were not on anyone's radar and extended much farther from the river than anyone would have ever imagined and spread very quickly, um, supported by the grass and got up into some of our historic buildings and burned the roof and furnishings of one of our old, old, over 100-year-old store down at Castellum. Yeah, I saw that yesterday and uh, it is under uh, reconstruction, I guess. Yeah, it's a project that we're working with with our friends group, uh, Big Bend Conservancy, and they've, uh, they're dedicated to helping us um, rehabilitate the La Harmonia store down at Castellon. So will some of this um, new money from the Great American Outdoors Act help to battle some of these uh, issues with the grasses and the, you know, the invasive trees? And The Great American Outdoor Act money is not really geared toward that. It's for specific projects and big, giant infrastructure projects. And so Big Bend was perfect, you know, for these other two, the water project, the water lines, and the lodge project. That's perfect infrastructure needs for a park. Um, the other projects come for just a variety of soft money projects, uh, border money initiative projects, um, resource pro resource related projects for those. We also have fee projects here in the park, so fee money. Uh, the funds that we collect for campground fees, entrance fees, things like that, and we're working on a variety of fairly, fairly significant projects related to that too. Um, brand new exhibits for the uh, Persimmon Gap Visitor Center. Those are era 1970s right now and kind of embarrassing to me so excited to have some new exhibits going in up there uh, as well as uh, a new visitor center facility down in Castellone. You know we lost our visitor center as well during that fire that was in one corner of the historic store structure. So uh, we're renovating another 100 year old adobe house down in Castellone known as the garlic house and that'll open hopefully this winter as a new visitor center facility down in Castellone. As, and we're also working on a whole bunch of old, uh, old wayside projects that are throughout the park, uh, roadside exhibits that are kind of woefully out of date and information is not quite up to snuff and it, it, they just don't quite look the way we like, like to have our typical park service exhibits. So over the next three years, we'll be renovating literally all of our roadside exhibits. So that's exciting to me. Yeah, and I, I have to say that I think from what I've seen, so far on this trip is that the trails are pretty well maintained that I've taken and um, and everything seems to be the roads seem to be in good shape I could tell that some of the roads were redone recently 
I love the the signs that you have um, here and there along the trail or at the trailheads that are made out of metal with uh, cutout lettering, uh, kind of rusty looking, and they fit really nicely mm-hmm. into the landscape. Yeah, if anyone's been to Big Bend before, you'll see those unique trail signs we have. We do all those in-house, and it's basically cutout metal signs. You, when the park was first established, the park tried to kind of stay within the Park Service guidelines of wooden routed signs does not work in the desert whatsoever. The wood doesn't last long on itself. And then the, the termites in the desert are just ravenous for wood, but the worst culprit are the, the little desert woodpeckers. So little ladder-backed woodpeckers will rip a sign to shreds within about five years. So we, <laughs> we moved all of, our <laughs> all of our trail signs to pure metal, and they look wonderful. They're beautiful. They're very, yeah. they're very artistically done. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm so. glad you noticed that. Sure. One other thing, undocumented immigrants coming into the park, more than 200 between November 25th and December 1st. Where are they coming in and and, uh, uh, what's happening with that? Again, if you look at Big Bend on the map and kind of see where we are, we do uh, administer a fairly large chunk of the U.S.-Mexico border. I I think with the park and the Rio Grande Wild and Scenic River, it may be close to like 10, 11% of the U.S.-Mexico border is administered by the National Park Service here. But at the same time, look at the map and see what sort of infrastructure there is south of the park in Mexico. And it's literally hundreds of miles of rugged Chihuahuan desert with really no roads or towns or facilities. Um, So it's very inhospitable terrain. And so because of that, Big Bend, although we're on the border, we're typically the slowest sector of the whole U.S.-Mexico border. In recent weeks, we did see an uptick in uh, family groups coming across in some of the very remote areas of the park. And yeah, within about two weeks, I think we had you know, close to 500 uh, immigrants' families crossing. And these are not people that are eluding the Park Service. They are people that are coming into the United States and immediately asking for asylum. And um, Park rangers and our Border Patrol partners responded, and we provided first aid as needed, and there was those folks were uh, brought to Alpine, the closest Border Patrol facility for processing for their asylum claims. So that that's uh, more than we've we've seen in the past, and that those numbers have dropped way down now again. So we're not sure exactly what that pulse really was all about, um, but uh, that is something that does happen here. Uh, we are on the border, and people do cross, seeking a better life. And uh, But it's very difficult to get here, so it's not a very common thing, and it's certainly not anything that a typical visitor would encounter or have any fear of any anything related to that. You know, these are people that often are coming across seeking help. Absolutely. So, mm-hmm. so yesterday, walking through the canyon, uh, Santa Elena Canyon, and the water's shallow there, and it's clear, and I just see tons of footprints. Mm-hmm. Are those from people? I wondered if maybe yeah, they no, were horseback. Um, well, there there could be some livestock. You know, across the river in Mexico, there are small farms, small ejidos, and small communities, and livestock is a big part of their life. But I think what you're seeing are, because I actually walked up the canyon just the other day myself, a lot of people just getting out and walking, in very muddy areas. Yeah, it's, it looks like it's a foot thick. Yeah, the river is very low right now. 
the Rio Grande, you know, you think about the Rio Grande and it starts up in the Rocky Mountains and flows, you know, all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. Most of the Rio Grande does not make it to Big Bend National Park, which is kind of something that people are surprised to hear. Most of the Rio Grande is used and reused multiple times up in the, in the, the central Rockies and states, uh, and much of that water doesn't make it past El Paso anymore. So the channel of the Rio Grande is pretty choked with exotic plants, tamarisk and cane. It's kind of a miasma of backwaters and channels. And then it gets rejuvenated across from the Texas town of Presidio, which is to the west of here. Uh, the Rio Conchos drains the high mountains of Chihuahua, Mexico. And nowadays, when you're looking at the Rio Grande in Big Bend National Park, or you're floating the river, enjoying the scenery, most of that water, uh, close to maybe 80% of that water, is not really Rio Grande water. It's coming from Mexico, from the Rio Conchos. And uh, we're in drought conditions right now, and the river is very, very low right now. Um, so people are walking up the, some of the river canyons. There's a couple other places in the park where it gets rejuvenated by springs, groundwater. So places down near the Hot Springs or Boquillas Canyon or the Lower Canyons, those are still places that people are doing float trips this time of the year. But it's really darn low in a couple other spots. Yeah. Is there a rainy season here? Yeah, we do. It's, it's, uh, that's one thing that makes the Chihuahuan Desert. So we have one rainy season, and it's in the summer. Um, so it's late summer. It's really like kind of mid-July through about mid-August, or mid-September. So there's just a few months there that everything here has to be able to survive that long period until the next rainy season. If we're lucky, we'll get a few systems that come through in the wintertime and maybe drizzle for a day or two, but that's really rare. So most of the water here all comes from uh, short-lived, uh, intense uh, afternoon th thunderstorms in the summer months. And so visitors that come here in the summer, <laughs> you know, it's really hot, but it's also really green. And the desert is at its best in the summer. It's beautiful green, all kinds of life, all kinds of things happening. Big clouds every afternoon, giant thunderstorms. It's really exciting. Um, and when most of our visitors come in the wintertime to take advantage of the warm weather, most of our plants are dormant. A lot of the shrubs and trees don't even have leaves on them this time of the year. And, you know, it's still a beautiful place, but it's kind of a big, wide-open sea of brown. And uh, I think the desert looks probably its worst in the wintertime and the best in the summertime. So if you've been here before in the wintertime a few times, think about coming in the summer. As long as you're prepared, it's a wonderful time to visit. Absolutely. Well, it must be kind of thrilling to see a big storm kind of roll in. It's amazing. We just had a big one just a few weeks ago. Uh, it just was not really on anybody's radar. We had a park function one evening after work, and we're all up there outside at the Park Ramada, and uh, we saw some lightning in the distance, and no one really thought much about it. And we got to work the next day, and the whole river had come up like 15 feet, flooded things out, washed <laughs> things away. It was in danger of flooding the campground. It was like all hands on deck, pandemonium, and the river just like flashed because of huge storms in Mexico. It didn't even rain where we are in the park, but it rained south of us in Mexico. And all those little creeks flashed and flooded into the Rio. And boy, that was exciting for a while. Actually, there was one river group uh, camped out in one of the canyons and they had a, a very exciting evening. Well, the next day, everything <laughs> was kind of washed away and they were surrounded by mud and water. <laughs> so it can be exciting for sure. 
I'm going to go back um, to the construction projects and the, the water pipe project. And when those come about, I mean, the, the amount of materials that need to be brought in, the labor, the folks that need to come in and work on those projects, it's almost like you will have to set up some kind of CCC kind of camp. Have you, have you thought about how that, has the park thought well, about how yeah, that Well, yeah, and what areas will we have to close, you know, while we're rebuilding the lodge building? That's the restaurant, so will the lodge be open? As much as we can keep it open, we want to keep it open and probably have some sort of temporary food service here for a while, but that's that could be an extended while. It's not going to be an easy thing. Right, it's, and I want to interject, too, that we are here at Panther Junction, where we're having our chat, we are an hour from the entrance to the park, would you say? Yeah, about 45 minutes. 45 minutes. And then coming from the other side, from um, Turtlingua or Lajitas, is another 45-hour mm-hmm. drive. So it's not going to be a kind of pro- a job that you can come in. Well, maybe you can come in and commute every day from somewhere else outside the park. But Yeah, I imagine that there would need to be some sort of contractor housing set up. And we have a few places that we could do that sort of thing at certain times of the year with you know, RVs and things like that. But it would def- it's definitely not going to be something that will be easy. It's uh, the right thing to do, and it's something that we need to do to set the park up for continued success into the future. But... It is going to be a logistical challenge for sure. Things may have to be closed for a year or so while we're working on some of these things. I talked about the window trail, one of the most popular trails in the park. Uh, That's probably not going to be open if we're redoing the pipeline that follows the trail or in many places is under the trail. We're not quite sure yet. Again, we're still kind of at the formative stages of this. We're committed to doing it, but without seeing the full design and all that, it's... uh, be very expensive and 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 pretty challenging yeah but just think of the the good things that will come from it in the future absolutely and also there's 800 miles of other hiking trails available too well that's right (laughs) you know even if we close the entire chisos mountains not that we would do that there's still 98 percent of the park is still available we do have some you talked about the roads earlier Um, those folks that are coming in the next year we may find even better roads will be resurfacing literally all the park roads this year. No uh, kidding. Probably more kind of a late spring operation. Yeah. I saw a crew yesterday out somewhere working at some cones. Yeah. It looked like they were doing some erosion work along the side of the road. That's kind of a never-ending thing. Yeah. Um, there's a couple areas that need a little more attention, but most of the park roads are just way overdue for uh, federal highways to come in and do a whole resurfacing of them. So. I don't think we'll have to really close many roads for that, but it'll be a little bit of a little bit of a problem for people visiting at the time. But again, in the long run, it'll be wonderful. Yeah, scenic driving is one of the big attractions here too, as you can imagine. Beautiful. So. Let me ask you about the haze. There is, since I've been here the last few days, there has been just a mm-hmm. thick haze. Um, that prevents you from seeing mountain ridges way off in the distance. What's what's causing that haze? I'm not sure what's causing today's haze. Um, I haven't been around for about a week. I know before I left, it was very clear. Big Ben collects air masses from all directions, literally. And when it's clear, it's unbelievable. If we have a cold front that comes through down off the Great Plains, it can just look like a brown nightshade has been pulled over your eyes. Uh, for a couple of days until the cold air comes back behind it and clears it out. 
Um, sometimes we get sulfate emissions from Mexico or as far away as the Gulf Coast. It, it's easy to say, oh, there's pollution coming from Mexico, and that's not necessarily always the case. There was a big study that was done here in the 2000s called the Bravo study, where they released isotopes from power plants all through the United States and Mexico. And surprisingly enough, we found that air travels a long way to get to Big Ben, just like visitors. And sometimes it collects here from different places. Yeah, so it's actually clearing. It's actually getting better than it was years ago. So I can't tell exactly what I'm looking at today. Some of that might look like natural haze to me, um, but it's hard to say. So how long have you been here and where did you come from? I've, I've worked at Big Bend um, twice in my career. I love it here so much I had to come back. I came here in the early or late 90s and uh, raised my kids here in Panther Junction. They went to a little school here at Panther Junction. Parks raised great kids and uh, <laughs> they're now working for the Park Service uh, too in other places. I worked here in the uh, Big Ben for many years back then and then went away to Alaska where I was for about for over 15 years at uh, Wrangell St. Elias and Glacier Bay National Park and then another opportunity opened up at Big Bend and uh, my wife and I jumped on the chance to come back and live and work with the great staff at Big Bend. Uh, again, there's this kind of magic to the place and it's a, it's a wonderful place for me to be a Park Service employee because we all work together. We all live together right here behind park headquarters. There's a tiny little community. Um, we're isolated from really anywhere else. It's, it's kind of a magical type of thing that I think maybe used to be more the case in other national parks, but uh, not so much anymore. So uh, it's, it's, it takes a special person to, to love living in the Chihuahuan Desert. Um, but once that person gets here, they'll never want to leave. Sure. <laughs> Yeah. And what a contrast between Glacier Bay, Alaska, and Big Bend. It's true. You know, I've worked in many remote places throughout my career in the Park Service. I kind of seek those out. And Big Bend, to me, just seems more remote than any of the parks I've ever worked at, even in Alaska. I, I still own a house in Alaska in a tiny community near Glacier Bay National Park that you have to fly to or take a boat to. And I spend some time there every summer. But You're talking about Gustavus? Yeah, Gustavus, Alaska, um, a really special place. And in many ways, it's a lot like Big Bend because it's a tiny little community of people that live surrounded by the national park, ocean on one side, mountains on the other, and surrounded by the park. So a lot like this. But when I'm up there, one thing I notice is that it's loud. It's a loud place. You wouldn't think so. But there are always airplanes flying over. There are boats, cruise ships, and tour boats, and there's just all kinds of activity. And I come to Big Bend National Park when I come back and it is quiet. There are no airplanes here. You could be here for two weeks and never see an airplane in the sky. There are no contrails, there's no sounds like that. And you just get a few feet off of any of the roads or get out on any of the trails and it is just the most amazing natural soundscape that you could find anywhere. And that's that's really what keeps me coming back here. I just love the natural sounds, the big open spaces, and honestly, even with 600,000 visitors that we're seeing today, um, there's more than enough space for people to find their park out here in the wide open places of Big Bend. Very good. I have noticed the silence too, and I love it. And I promise I'm not going to wait another 30 years to come back awesome. <laughs> because I'm like, this was not a hard trip, really. It was yeah. uh, about six hours from San Antonio. When we got here. It was a beautiful drive and so much diversity along the way with the landscape. Mm -hmm. And 
San Antonio, you're you're a neighbor. You're that's local. That's right next door. <laughs> I know. I'm embarrassed <laughs> to say it's been so long since I was here. Yeah. But anyway, we covered a lot of territory today. Any anything we left out that you'd like to touch on? I just think um, everybody should visit Big Bend at least once. Again, because it's different than anywhere else in the United States. If you lived in Texas and you haven't been here before, well, then you're way overdue because this, after all, is your place. You need to come and see it. But everybody in the United States, any American, ought to be able to come and see this and just kind of get a feel for what big, wide-open spaces really are. Um, I just actually met a guy in the visitor center early this morning that's here because he's seeking out the most remote places in every state. And he wants to get as far away from a road as he can in every single state uh, in the country. <laughs> and I believe the place in Texas is the, that he found, using GIS and satellite imagery, is the furthest away from any road that you can get anywhere in the lower 48 states, a place in the Dead Horse Mountains here in the eastern side of the park. So that was kind of cool. Yeah. So people, they seek this out. And so if you're seeking things like that, it's all here for you. And if you just want to see a roadrunner for the first time, it's also a great place for you. Come on out. <laughs> well, Tom, it's been great talking with you today. Thank you so much for your time. Very and good. we are going to keep our eye on some of these issues that we talked about and um, check in with you later, if you don't mind. Excellent. That sounds great. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week. Lynn returns with more of her adventures and personal musings from Big Bend National Park. I'd like to thank all the listeners and readers who donated to the Traveler's year-end fundraising drive. There was a great outpouring of support that will enable us to continue bringing you news from national parks and protected areas. For the Traveler, this is Kurt Rappencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.